A bit of funky music there to start your day here on Fuzzy Logic to Double X, your science on a Sunday. Now, I think it was about 10 years ago, I was doing one of the first interviews with a serious scientist, a professor, a cognitive scientist, and her name was Professor Kristen Pammer. And Kristen was wandering around on the footpath outside the studio here in Civic. And hi, Kristen, how are you going? Nice to meet you. Let's go up now to the studio. We'll broadcast our show, Cognitive Science, right? And we got out of the lift, and I'm going, where's the studio? Hang on, I'm really confused. You know what I'd done? I'd pressed the button for the second floor. The studio is on the third floor. Now, I wasn't alert at the time, but the problem was... I wasn't paying attention to the right thing, <laughs> which is which is kind of ironic because Professor Pammer's topic of research was attention and how we pay attention. <laughs> and uh, well, it's a beautiful a beautiful piece of a circular circular something or other because we now have a PhD student from the same labs at the ANU, and her name is Rebecca Lawrence. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning. It's um, it's great that we got the right floor today. <laughs> we were paying attention. Yeah, we actually managed to turn up on the right floor. Isn't that <laughs> isn't that a wondrous wondrous thing? And uh, joining us also is Caitlin. Good morning, Caitlin. Morning, Ron. Morning, Rebecca. And uh, now, uh, Rebecca, your research, as I say, is in attention. Mm -hmm. And let's just start off something really basic, okay? What What is attention? What's going on when we pay attention? Well, I guess this is really famous quote from one of the first psychologists ever called William James, and he says that we all know what attention is. So you can think of it, we know what we're doing when we pay attention and when we look out into the world. But when you actually try and sit down and define attention, it can get a little bit tricky. And in psychology, we actually have a whole lot of different competing definitions of what attention is but when I say attention I'm talking about our brain being efficient and trying to uh, filter out all the irrelevant information to us and focus on what's important. Ah okay now I'm thinking this is that, that famous video that people watch and you know the one with the gorilla. <laughs> the gorilla yeah. <laughs> yeah do you want to describe mm -hmm. that for me because I think um, many of our listeners will know the gorilla and the basketball <laughs> story but it's pretty cool isn't it? It's a, bit, a little bit about misdirection and it kind of feeds into magic tricks and things like that but um, what happens in the gorilla experiment is that at the start of this video you're asked to just watch a bunch of people throw a basketball around and you have to count how many times they've passed the basketball. And so you're really focused on counting on that. But what happens halfway through that video is that a gorilla kind of walks straight through the back of the scene. And most people don't notice the gorilla because they're so focused on um, watching the ball getting passed. So, so it, it's what you're watching as much as what you're not watching, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, actually, we did a little public demonstration of this because I was uh, hosting a panel for National Science Week a few years ago, mm. and I said at the beginning of the of the uh, show that uh, there was a bottle of wine for the person who uh, could figure out where the the wine went, and then halfway through, we got someone. I had a plant in the audience, and we did a little stage to hold up, and they fired those little uh, popcorn, you know, those little paper. Um, what do you call them? The party popper things? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think somebody was uh, 
was alert <laughs> and he was actually underage so I was a bit naughty but he, he won a <laughs> bottle of wine he could give it to his parents <laughs> that's alright <laughs> uh, you, there's been two major threads to your research you're mm -hmm. doing your PhD right yeah and the first one is the connection of ageing and attention What mm -hmm. what is that research so in my research overall I've got two ideas and one of them is I want to know what it is about different people that helps us direct our attention and use it in the world. And one of those things inevitably is that we grow older. And I really wanted to know if there was any changes in that. Might have been a little bit self-serving, but you know, nonetheless, I was interested. Um, and the sort of attention that I was looking at in that research was what I call attentional scaling. And that's your ability to either focus your attention in or spread it out to the world. Uh, one of my favorite examples to think about this is in driving. So if you imagine you're driving down a quiet street, you could focus on what's directly ahead of you, you could focus on the speedo, things like that, so you have a narrow focus of attention. However, what might happen is that somebody could suddenly run out onto the road or a dog or something like that, and you might not capture it because you're focusing straight ahead. So it can be just as important to spread your attention out broadly to the sidewalk so that you can catch those peripheral distractors. Well, th this has a very important practical application, mm -hmm. doesn't it? Because yep. uh, driving safety, right? Yeah, exactly. And that was one of the main reasons why I got interested in uh, ageing research in the first place and that sort of area is because in my undergraduate research, I was just looking more at um, the pure relationship between attention and vision. But I thought, hey, I want to think about what this, ac this actually means for the world. Um, and I thought that with a skill like attention, which you can see is so important for things like driving and reading, um, knowing how that changes as we grow older, we've got an ageing population, seems to be a pretty important thing to do. Yeah. Yep. Well, I've, I've just got a new car and uh, the amount of electronics in it is quite uh, daunting, really. Mm. I think I've got a, an onboard IT support person who, <laughs> who can diagnose and, and uh, a help desk function, you know. But the amount of stuff going on inside the car has now escalated mm. a lot. Do, is that an issue? Do we know, is there any concrete evidence that that's a problem? Yeah, um, I actually was at a conference a few months ago in Tasmania and somebody was doing some great research on how different types of distractions in the car make you not notice things on the sidewalk and periphery um, for a long time afterwards. So they had conditions where people either had to do maths equations that were getting spoken to them or they were doing maths equations um, on their phone kind of in the driving simulator and every now and then they had um, like little flashes come up in the periphery that people had to detect. Are they measuring how, how alert? Yeah, so they're measuring how yeah. different types of distraction, yeah. um, how, how better or worse that makes you're getting things in that peripheral vision area. And what they found was that if you were doing things on the phone, even after you'd finished the equation, you had this kind of distracted period of about 30 seconds in some instances where you weren't noticing things in the periphery. Really? So it takes about... 30 seconds for your brain to realign. To kind of like, yeah, to try and catch up essentially, yeah. Wow. Which is very interesting because you think when you're, say, changing the radio when you're driving or doing things that are distracting you, it can take a bit of time for your brain to catch up and get back to that full well, alertness. It's, it's no wonder people have accidents. Mm. It's, well, let's just talk a little bit about what's going on in, as you are driving a car because mm. this is vast... Yes. amount of information, right? So it's not obviously just attention. You've also got motor commands. You've got a whole lot of different sensory things going on. 
And it's really about how your brain um, can be flexible and combine all of those things together. So, for example, with attention, um, there's two main types of attention that we use when we're driving. Um, one we can call a bottom-up attention. So it's kind of like attention that's driven by external changes in the environment. So it's kind of like um, a child or a dog running onto the road that's immediately going to capture you because it's going to flash up. So that's an alert of some sort or something yeah. unexpected. Something right. unexpected or something really bright, um, which is what this is our bottom-up attention. Yep. And we've also got top-down attention, which is what is our goal. So our goal might be to stay on the road and keep in the lane, or it could be, oh, I want to answer my phone, but I shouldn't, something like that. Oh, so if you were a racing car driver and mm -hmm. you're on a racetrack, your, your goal is to be the fastest and to overtake, but then if mm. the car spins out... I, I yeah. I, right. I recall we went to a Grand Prix once and Wayne Gardner was uh, racing and we held, had the Australian flag pinned up to the fence mm -hmm. and then after the race we, we snuck past the, uh, the security and, and we met him <laughs> and we said, did you see our flag? Mm -hmm. And I was really surprised and yes, he, well, maybe he was fibbing but mm -hmm. he said he had yeah, right. So that's another really interesting point is that whether you're an expert in something or not can change how well you attend to things. So because he was an expert driver, maybe he was able to notice those extra things. Um, think about like cognitive capacity. Uh, we were talking about a bit earlier before the show and how many resources you have to do something. Yeah. A regular driver might have less resources to attend to things on the side like a flag, but an expert driver who's got a lot of experience, might have some more cognitive resources freed up. Uh, so a lot of those things are pushed to the back of the brain to, and they become mm. automatic subconscious Yeah, yeah kind responses. of like riding a bike. Yeah. yeah. Just before we go on, now we are on Twitter and mm -hmm. you're going to be uh, talking about a few uh, experiments, there's a few visual things, so our listener mm -hmm. can actually go on to a website and see stuff that we're talking about now. Do you want to uh, give us the handle, people... Uh, yep, so your handle? Yeah, all yep. yours. So the station's handle is um, at Fuzzy Logic Sci. Yep. And it's all one word because it's a handle, obviously. Um, and my handle is Beck in Motion. Uh, all one word. At? Uh, yeah, at Beck in Motion. Okay. So B E C I N and then Motion. Okay, so uh, you're, you're going to tweet or you have tweeted uh, some addresses that we can yep. look at? I'll have a, I'll do a few now. The well, we might wait until a, yeah. a song breaks so you could, yep. you could pay attention. That'd be good. I'm trying to misdirect my attention right now, There right? you go, you see. Now, this is such an important thing, isn't it? <laughs> uh, now, I actually noticed this being in the studio now. I told the story of Professor Kristen Pammer and how my attention was focused on talking to Kristen and I hadn't been doing radio for all that long. And now when we get into the studio, right, uh, now I just want a listener to peer into the radio or to the web streaming, which is through the website, uh, 2xx.org.au, I think. Yeah. Right, good. Yeah. <laughs> I should know. <laughs> uh, you can see the console. I've got the audio console in front of me. I've got a keyboard. I've got bits of crap. There's headphones, microphones. There's CD players. I've got two computer monitors. There's a lot going on in here. And I have to juggle all of that and at the same time talk to you and hopefully sound like I'm not a complete nit. You don't sound like a nit. <laughs> You're okay. <laughs> but, but what I found over years of doing this is that a lot of that stuff, like you said, with the racing car driver is now pushed to the background. Mm -hmm. 
Yep, that's right. So you've got two different types of memory and learning, and one's um, explicit, so when you're trying to learn a fact, so say, I want to learn who the Prime Minister was 100 years ago, who I don't know actually. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other one is implicit, which is kind of the thing that you practice over and over again, and it becomes almost like a habit. So being able to control all the different um, sections of this uh, program for you would be an implicit sort of memory process. And, and this, this taps into learning, but we, we, mm. we have we have kind of jumped topic <laughs> we have. a bit. I, I, I do do that here on Fuzzy Logic, and our guest today is Rebecca Lawrence. We're talking about attention. And Caitlin, feel free to throw a big question, Caitlin. <coughs> we will... We, we might break to a track. What do you reckon? Uh, I've got Sounds a couple good. of good, good funky tracks here on Fuzzy Logic. Not sure which one this is. Let's see. Oh, Nuffbush. Uh, Nutbush City Limit, only 25 was the speed limit and that's because of course you shouldn't be driving too fast when you don't know what's going on around and the little dog and the little girl jump out in front of you and it would be terrible. Uh, we're talking attention here on Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday and our guest Rebecca Lawrence. Uh, it's great to have you Rebecca because anything to do with brain I think is just fascinating. Mm -hmm. I think that too. <laughs> just fascinating. Well, you are, in fact, doing a PhD on this. And now I think you've tweeted a link. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so our listener, if they want, you can uh, pick up the link and the link will take us to what? Uh, it's going to take us to a classic psychology illusion mm -hmm. called the Mueller-Liar illusion. And the reason I tweeted this illusion is because I want to talk about how cultural background can influence this by virtue of our attention and how well we see this illusion. Oh, okay. So yep. I can't see it on my monitor. You want to hold it up for me? Yes. Me so see. what we've got is, oh, okay, is the pair of lines and the arrows at either end, one set of arrows pointing into the centre and the other set pointing out. Mm -hmm. And I've seen this before, so this is the classic one that... Uh, confuses us to say that one is longer than the other, right? That's right. So often people will look at these two different lines and think that they're different lengths because the arrows pointing outwards um, kind of encourage you to see the one with the arrows pointing outwards as a longer line compared to the one with arrows pointing inwards when in fact when you take away the arrows we can see that the lines are the same length. And it's a very, very common and famous illusion in psychology. Um, kind of to show you that um, your sight and what you see isn't necessarily um, a correct representation of what's really going on in the world. Your perceptions influence what you see incredibly. Um, so it's being, it's being biased by the arrows. Arrows are uh, misdirecting our attention. Yes, yeah, yeah, kind of like that. So it's, it's giving you a, a cue or a clue almost to perceive the lines in a certain way. Um, based on what your, ex what your experiences are and what you're used to seeing. So we're really used to seeing um, arrows and I guess backwards arrows is how you say it, um, to make the corners of rooms and edges and things like that. Yeah. So we immediately see that as an extended contour, which is making everything appear a bit longer. Um, it's kind of how we perceive depth as well in images and um, paintings. Okay, now, but that's an artefact largely of our cultural heritage, right? Um, 
So that is one theory of what's going on in the Mueller-Lyer illusion, um, one that I think is really fascinating. So there was some research done a fair while ago, back in the 1960s, where um, some researchers wanted to see whether all cultural um, backgrounds, all cultural groups experience this illusion. And so, you know, they went to America and the UK and common sort of Western countries and found that everybody got this illusion that, yep, um, we see the two lines as different lengths. But they also went out to some more remote parts of the world and remote tribes. And I can't actually remember what the tribe was. But what they found was that some groups weren't actually getting this illusion at all because they hadn't had that, well, they think they hadn't had that experience of being able to see um, contours and edges like this in rooms and buildings. So they, it changed their expectation. Yeah. Uh, now, now, Caitlin, you, you, your day job is with the ACT Environment Commission, and before the show, you were talking about uh, Australian Aboriginal people and how they perceive things differently. Can you tell, tell, go through that story again? Sure. So it was something that <laughs> I picked up at the Cultural Burning Forum last month um, and it was just about how um, indigenous people introduce themselves so rather than saying hello my name is Caitlin or hi Rod how are you today they'll say you know they'll introduce themselves by saying I'm heading north so it's not everything in, is in relation to geography rather mm -hmm. than you know how we perceive things which is how are you or I'll introduce myself so it might be I'm heading northwest or you know this is the direction that I've come and from. And that says a lot about what's important to them right? Absolutely. So the, the geography, well, if you don't know where the watering, water hole is you, you'll, or, or the food is, you'll starve. Mm, that's right. And, and the fact that my name is Rod or you're Caitlin <laughs> is probably... Totally irrelevant. It's not important. Mm. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, different cultures have different thinking styles and different ways of seeing themselves. And I'm not 100% familiar on um, Indigenous culture, but what I've really been looking at in my research is... Um, Eastern cultures versus Western cultures generally. Because um, in psychology, we often focus on Western participants um, just because that's what's available and to students. us. students. Western 19-year-olds, usually 18, 19-year-old psychology students, a lot of females usually. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we end up with a very biased sample in our research. Um, so I wanted to know whether our different cultural experiences can shape how we use attention. Um, and there's a lot of research, in fact, which shows that it does. Um, so you can think of, for example, Eastern cultures having a much more holistic view of the world where people are interested in the relationships between different objects and they see themselves as interdependent to one another. So you might define yourself um, in relation to your family. Whereas, to to yeah, a group, membership yeah. of, a, of a group. Yeah, whereas Western cultures, people typically see themselves as more individual and they're more have got an analytic thinking style where they're going to focus on individual objects and the details of that object. And, and to break down the world, maybe even to fragment it perhaps. Yes. But even within Western cultures, so the Americans in particular are very much more individualistic mm. and in Australia we're probably a bit somewhere more towards the group and that's probably changing, I guess. Yeah. Look, I think with these cultural background sorts of research questions and ideas, we've got to remember that it's a somebody who's typical of the culture, maybe, or it might be something that's usually done. But we're all in a continuum, and of course, we could have 
people in America who are holistic and people in um, China, say, who are analytic. Ah, so beware the stereotype. Yes, I'd, I'd hate to stereotype how different groups think in general, but what the research shows is that typically some people might think one way and other people think the other way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think I tend to be more a holistic thinker and, yeah. and, and I tend to ignore a lot of detail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so how does this affect the visual style? And you mentioned mm. the illusion of the lines with the arrows pointing yeah. in and pointing out. Yeah. What, what else have you looked at? So um, this research is actually quite recent. Um, and really it started in the early 2000s where, first of all, people were trying to get different cultural groups to describe visual scenes in the world. And I think first off they used a picture of some fish in a fish tank and they got some people to, um, from Japan and America to describe the picture to each other. And what they found was that the Americans tended to focus on, oh, there's three fish in this picture. They might have, you know, blue scales, red scales, whatever. Whereas the um, Japanese participants were more likely to say something like, oh, there's three fish, but they're swimming together in a group towards the reeds. So and it's a relationship, the yeah. Bay part of that group. So. Yeah. Depending upon how you're thinking about it, people were attending to different aspects of that visual scene to either be more broad and seeing the relationships between things or more focused and looking at details. Now, I imagine there's a strategy both approaches have strengths and weaknesses, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So um, there's different benefits to either focusing your attention in and spreading it out. Um, so when you're focused in, you're better at seeing fine spatial detail. So say you've got to discriminate between a really small gap, perhaps you're reading a letter. Mm -hmm. Having focused in attention is going to help you with that because you're going to be able to see that detail mm -hmm. better. Mm -hmm. But um, you might want to have broad attention when you're trying to search for something um, in the crowd. Yeah. Yeah, just so you can get more of a... Uh, idea of the gist of a scene. So being broad helps with that sort of um, visual search element. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, now you can prime yourself to pay attention to something. So when it does happen, you're ready. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. There's actually, oh, this is very cool. Um, so looking at whether you either focus in narrow or broadly, there's been some research which shows you can get primed to think either um, independently, so somebody like, more think like a Western person, or interdependently, so more Eastern. Um, so what in this study, what they did was they got people to read essays with the words I, my in them, or we, us, and they got people to circle those words. And depending on whether they'd spent half an hour circling the I, my words or the we, us, they either spread out their attention broadly or focused it in. Oh, so you can bias what, you, what happens next. Yeah, so you can prime people to attend in different ways just by virtue of the way they're thinking about themselves, ah. which is very cool. Isn't that interesting? So the, the, the classical view of the, of the brain is it's, it's basically a computer and it's mm -hmm. a, a mechanical electrical system mm. and it's all very logical. But uh, I've been reading a book about uh, human psychology and economics mm. by called Predictably Irrational. Do you, do you know the book? Yeah, I think I've heard of that one, yeah. Yeah. And what, what this professor, and he got students, he got students, <laughs> as they always do, and three bottles of wine. Right? And he said, I want you to bid for the bottle of wine. How much do you think this bottle of wine is worth? But he primed them by saying, I want you to read out aloud the last two digits of your social security number. <laughs> right? Like a random two-digit yep. number. And people with a high number bid a higher price <laughs> for the bottle of wine. 
Than the people with a low number. Oh dear. <laughs> oh dear. Is that using it for good or for bad? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, we might break to another track here on Fuzzy Logic and track number nine. We'll see what comes up. And during the song break, Jeff gave us a call and he had a couple of questions, Caitlin. What, what did he want to know? Yes, yeah, so thanks to Jeff from Belconnen. Uh, his question was, how do you focus your attention for things like uh, where's Wally puzzles and crosswords? Oh, and before you, before you answer, Rebecca, it, it strikes me that there's a kind of like a meta layer. There's a, like a supervisor layer over the top. So somehow in your consciousness which itself mm-hmm. is a difficult question. Yes. <laughs> you you have some sort of choice about where you direct your attention and then there's the system underneath that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. So, shall we, we'll answer the where's Wally question first. That's a great question. Um, and, and really, attention is a really good... Ex- this is a really good example of how attention is used. So, in a where's Wally book, there's just... There's a lot going on, right? You've got lots of different tricks so you've got well you've got people who look like Wally where he's wearing people are wearing the red and the white um, what happens happens in these examples is that well obviously we need attention in the first place to be able to see Wally because we need to filter out all of the distractors and what happens in particular for where's Wally is that people really have to focus their attention in um, and this is an example of what we call conjunction search um, so we might either spread our attention broadly or focus it in, depending on how complex a visual scene is when we're looking for something. So in Where's Wally, things are really, really complex and we have to discriminate between lots of different features. So they're really busy yeah. images, aren't so they? So it's a conjunction of features and when we've got um, different features all binding together to make a unique object, we have to be able to focus our attention into small areas to discriminate which is why Where's Wally takes us such a long time, because we've got to use a small focus of attention and then kind of scan that attention across the picture book to try and find him. But if there was a more um, sparse visual scene, to say Wally was just sitting on a page by himself, we wouldn't necessarily have to focus in our attention to see him. We could spread broadly and immediately get him. So people must vary on, on how good they are at this. I, I noticed my daughter is really good. She she can pick up a four-leaf clover, and I'm terrible at doing it, which is a kind of a where's Wally. Mm. And I guess Wally is visually very similar to the yes. other objects on the yeah. page, right? Yeah, it's kind of like a clover. You need to be able to discriminate between those really small changes, and that's why you have to focus in. I imagine that... The reason some people are better than others might be because of their experiences. Um, so getting back to that experience element, yeah. that the more you've done something, the more flexible you are at it. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. I have a, a question that might throw a spanner in the works. Yes. So I used to look for four-leaf clovers all the time as a child, and I thought I was pretty good at it, but I'm an only child, and that's how I entertained myself. Would mm. being an only child influence my um, <laughs> ability to focus or my attention? I mean, it might do. <laughs> I, I think... What we've got to remember is that each person is unique and individual and that's what psychology is about. We're looking at these individual people and everybody has different experiences which are going to combine to make somebody have some particular preference for attention and how they attend to things. Before the show we were talking about um, personality and attention which is a really interesting topic and we find that in our research, um, not my research but just in general, People who are more conscientious tend to be able to focus their attention in more, whereas people who are open to new experiences, so they're usually um, more creative people, 
more likely to spread their attention broadly. But there's actually just like a whole lot of different factors which will combine together to give you a preference for how you search out something in the world. Ah, okay. Well, th that kind of really relates to me because uh, in, in writing my book, I, I'm, my attention is on telling the story, the characters, the situations and what happened next and mm. so on. And I find it really difficult to go down into the detail and, and pick this. I've doubled this word mm. or this sentence construction is, <laughs> is terrible. Yeah, I think people definitely have... Um preferences for different ways of doing things and completing things and that's one of the most interesting things about psychology and cognitive psychology is that you can look at those differences and, and see and what we're doing. Caitlin's story, Caitlin you were looking for four-leaf clovers, you were, you were practicing so you were I developing. did become, I became pretty experienced in it too so maybe that was a factor. I wonder if that would transfer to different scenarios now, you're coming out of that four-leaf clover area. Uh, okay well there was a, Jeff had a, another question, I think, didn't he? Ah, uh, no. So that that was the main one. Yes, that was that was the the main one. Okay. So now the the visual aspect was something mm. you wanted to dig into a bit more. Yeah. So like I said before, I have um, two different parts of my research, and the first part, which we've been talking about before, is what different factors kind of um, help shape how we use our attention. But the other part of my research is on what is actually happening in the brain when we use attention and how does it shape how we see different things. So once we've got our preferred scale of attention to be narrow or broad, how is that influencing the visual system in the brain? So just, just to, so mm -hmm. the, the scale question, so the, yep. the, the Where's Wally is an example of that, right? So yep. you scale in? Yep, you'd scale in for Where's Wally. And if it was something that was less complex, to say Wally was just by himself, you'd scale outwards and you'd yeah. have a broad okay. attention. So you could defocus. Also, oh, speed yeah. reading. Speed reading, mm. you, 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 you focus out and you just scan for key words. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've never tried that myself, but that might work, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So the other part of my research is looking at when we are focusing in or spreading out, how does that change the functioning of our visual system? So... Um, when we look at the world, what we're seeing isn't just determined by what's falling on our retina or our eyes. What's happening is we have um, visual pathways in our brain which encode different parts of information of the world and they all combine to give us um, a like, coherent percept of the world. And what we find in our research is that attention can influence um, the sensitivity of these different visual pathways and how they fire. And that's one aspect that I'm looking at in my research. Oh, okay. So yep. you're, you're, you would be priming one pathway through your brain. Yeah. Just, just how much of this is a brain thing and how much of it is a mind thing? Um, I think that's a really hard thing to separate and it's something I haven't really thought about too much in my work because I really don't think of it as being... You think separate. Of it, I think of it as all like one system, yeah, how that's working. Yeah. yeah. But uh, it's almost like a black box to you, is it? So you're looking at what goes in, something happens, and, and have the mechanism, and then something happens. Am I. Yeah, like I want to see. So I guess I want to see what happens if I tell somebody to focus their attention in or spread it out. Yeah. I want to see 
how that changes the visual system and therefore their behaviour or their ability to see. And then you're not things. particularly fussed about which part of the physical brain that's happening. Is oh that? no, I am. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. So um, there's two main pathways in the brain. One is like a pathway that looks at spatial detail and colour, so like letters, things like mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. and the form of objects. Yep. And the other pathway is looking at motion, um, blurry stuff. It's more better at processing blurry things. And also temporal things, so kind of like uh, a flickering light. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of think about temporal processing as being similar to um, when you cross the road at the traffic light and you have the walk, don't walk sign. When that's flashing and mm -hmm. you see that flash, that's mm -hmm. your temporal perception. And oh, so, so that's, that's tuned to looking for changes over yeah, time. Okay, yeah. yeah. So you've got one system that's doing spatial detail and colour and one that's doing temporal detail and motion. Um, going all the way from the lower part of your brain all the way up to the cortical areas. And I look at how narrow versus broad attention changes the sensitivity of those two pathways. Ah, so the, the brain is like layers and layers, isn't it? Yes. So the, my understanding is that the was something like half of your brain is detect in the physical brain is mm -hmm. devoted to visual processing. Yeah. Quite a lot of it is. I don't know about the exact half, half but okay. well, bit, um, bit. It's, a, it's a big chunk of your brain because we base a lot of what we do and what we see and how we navigate the world through sight. So we've got a big, big part at the back um, called the occipital lobe, yeah. which is doing a lot of our visual processing. But um, the brain's also really interconnected, so it's not just that area. It's like the connections between all the different parts and streams of the brain. But, yeah, a, lo yeah. a lot is vision. And it's pretty handy, so if there's something with large pointy teeth <laughs> in the shrubbery that wants to have to lunch you, then just having that so I guess at the evolutionary mm. sense it makes it makes sense yeah. so there's actually um two kind of pathways in our brain one's a subcortical pathway so the lower part of our brain and one is the cortical oh, the pr so primitive is that a yeah good more word? yeah like more primitive so we've yeah. got this more primitive system which was just really good at um, helping us direct where our eyes are moving to yep. kind of see where danger was and we've developed and so have a lot of other animals um, a more like cortical yep. visual system which has got a lot more detail to see things yep, yep. yeah so if you if you hear a loud noise so you're, you're visual rather than auditory yes attention yep. right okay I can help it I can try <laughs> with auditory but yeah no I'm just thinking of the loud noise of a sudden thing and you know you get the startle response mm and so that's really yeah that'd be more like a primitive sort yeah. of thing i would say yeah like you don't have time to think this over <laughs> yeah so yeah i'm really interested in this um in this cortical pathway okay because i know that attention can interact with that pathway okay yeah okay so now are you applying this to situations like driving we talked about driving mm -hmm. earlier today how might this affect we, how we design our roads, our cars, mm. and so on? Um, that would be the end goal. I think, first and foremost in science, you've got your basic science and your applied science. So yep. I really think they need to work together. And in my research, I look at the basic science, which is trying to understand what are the fundamentals. Yep. Um, and then at the other end, I've also had jobs in applied science where you're looking more at the driving situation. And so it's my goal at the end of my research, or in the future when I'm fully doctor, um, I could combine those two aspects together. Um, yeah, but right now I just look mainly at the very low level things. Okay. Yeah. Now, now just, just walk me through a few more of the experiments that you do. Mm -hmm. how, how do they work? Because you're looking for people to help. 
So maybe Jeff, if you're aged between... 18 to 40. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or any other listener, uh, you're looking for people to come into your lab and what might... Oh, Caitlin here, I think you fit. <laughs> I do meet the criteria, yeah. You do meet the criteria, Caitlin, <laughs> yep. All right, there we go. You might have a willing participant here. Uh, yeah, what, 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 do you, what are you doing in the lab? So um, this study that I'm doing right at the moment is looking at how your cultural background interacts with your ability to scale your attention narrowly or broadly yep. and then how that interacts to help how well you see spatial detail and temporal detail. So okay. there's a lot so of layers. Describe, describe yep. some of the experiments. So what happens is people would come into the lab, sit down at the computer and we'd get them to do a couple of the kind of like little computer games. Um, so one of them is that you'll see a circle or an oval appear on the screen and they'll be flashed up really quickly and you have to continuously see whether you've seen a circle or an oval. And they're shown at different sizes and that helps us to change the way you're setting your attentional scale. So if they're big circles and ovals, you have to spread your attention broadly to see the edges of them. Mm -hmm. And if they're small circles, you have to focus your attention in. So that's kind of uh, what we're doing to try and set the scale of your attention. And then after that, we get you to do some different tasks which are looking at your ability to see fine little spatial gaps so like you know differences in letter orientation or temporal gaps so your ability to see the flickering kind of like the walk don't walk sign okay and so, yeah uh, so, how long does it take are, are there more are there, um, that's they're, the one at the moment <laughs> they're the ones you're doing about 30 minutes about 30 minutes yeah and if somebody is interested it, it, i'd love to do it but i hate to say it, i fail one of your criteria oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> maybe i can come in and do it anyway just just for, just fun. for fun you're more than welcome to yeah but if somebody wants to be part of this, mm -hmm. how do they how do they go about that? Um, so they can send me an email. Uh, my email is just rebecca.lawrence at anu.edu.au. Um, you can find it on the ANU Psychology website as well, if you or I can tweet it as well, I suppose. Okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. We'll, we'll we'll do some promo through our tweet uh, mm -hmm. uh, at Fuzzy Logic Sci, and uh, well. Have give that a go. We might just break to a quick, uh, a big quick uh, song track. Here we go on Fuzzy Logic, Two Double X. Oh, don't forget to subscribe to Two Double X because that's what keeps us on the air. Costs a lot of money to run a studio like this, and my wages are huge. <laughs> I'm going to ask for a pay rise. Actually, I think it paid. Never mind. Uh, if you want to make a subscription, that much appreciated. Uh, go to the website uh, Fuzzy Logic. No, sorry, 2xx.org.au. And I hope you're all paying attention because that's where we're discussing today with our guest Rebecca Lawrence, who's from the ANU. Oh, great pleasure to talk to you, Rebecca, because all stuff brain I think is really fascinating. And Caitlin, now. Uh, the other part of your research was the ageing brain, right? Mm -hmm. And our ability to pay attention. Yes. Now, it seems that everything gets worse as you get older. <laughs> the bits you want to get bigger get smaller, the bits you want to get smaller get bigger, places you want to grow hair don't, and <laughs> so on. Yes. <laughs> what happens to attention? So... Uh, when I first started my PhD research, this was one of the questions I was really, really interested in was, does our ability to spread our attention broadly or focus it in change when we get older? And the reason I did that was because during my honours, I had a few people come in who were of all different ages do my study. 
um, the one with the circles and the ovals that I was just talking about before. And I've noticed just anecdotally that people of different ages typically were either better or worse at doing the task. And I started to wonder about, um, well, what is it? What's happening? There must be something changing. So um, in 2016, when I was bright-eyed and really positive about the PhD, which I still am. <laughs> and you didn't know what you couldn't do. <laughs> yeah. Um, I decided I'd do a study looking at whether our preferred... Um, our preferred attention to be brought on narrow change when we get older. And uh, when I first started reading the research, I think like most PhD students, I got super overwhelmed because half of the research said, yep, there are some big changes with aging. Um, our attention changes. Older adults are more likely to focus in. But then at the same time, there was also research saying, um, no, attention, we can still spread our attention broadly as we grow older. And then other research was saying there's no change at all. And oh, so, it's a very, very confusing. Story. I mean, that might have been my confusion, but in the research in general, yeah. I, there wasn't a clear picture. Yeah. And so, I wanted to try and figure out what was going on in this area. Um, and one of the ideas that I came up with was that all of these different studies that were looking at aging and attention tend to use different methods to measure whether somebody likes to spread their attention broadly or narrowly. And one of the big things I noticed was that the research finding no age differences in attention, tended to use experiments and computer programs that had a lot of spatial structure in them. So um, there'd be, say, boxes on the computer screen that were arranged as such that they form a circle on the screen. And this is getting a little bit long in the story, sorry. But what I thought was perhaps having spatial structure in the scene was helping older and younger adults to spread their attention in the same way. And that's why you don't find any age differences because everybody is able to use inf information in the visual world to set their attention to a particular distribution. So this itself is an interesting thing, I think, because what you're saying is that there are many domains of attention, mm -hmm. aren't there? Yeah, many different ways you can use it and many different ways of testing it. Well, there's spatial attention, there, but there's uh, cognitive or intellectual yeah. and like focus yeah. and so on. What we call sustained attention, our ability to just kind of keep on attending to the same thing across time. Mm -hmm. um, and what I thought was perhaps the methods that we've been using to measure age differences in broad and narrow attention um, might not have been the most sensitive measures to pick up if there were any age differences. So um, I ran a study with a lot of wonderful, wonderful participants across Canberra who came from many different places and of many different ages. And I looked at what happened to people's preference to spread attention broadly or narrowly when there wasn't any spatial structure in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that if there wasn't any information for people to use, we might see some age differences appear. And so, yeah, I think I had probably about 150 people come into the lab with me. Um, so people aged 18 to 30 or people aged, I think there were about 60 to 90 years old come in, which was great, and do some attention tasks with me. And what I found was that when there's no information in the visual scene, there are actually some age differences. And unfortunately, or maybe not unfortunately, but older adults do tend to focus their attention in more narrowly which might mean that, say, if you're returning to that driving situation, they might miss something running onto the road. Mm -hmm. um, but that's only the case when there's no information to help them structure their attention. So the, the underlying brain processes are changing your underlying cognitive 
abilities change as you age, right? Mm -hmm. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. And are you then adapting your strategy according to your abilities? Yes, exactly right. So I I imagine that what's going on is that people can use the spatial structure in the world um, or as well using more time to help compensate for changes in cognition. And there's a really great theory called crunch, which is compensation-related neural something or another (laughs) I forgot the end of it sorry Um, and it's about how older adults tend to be able to um, use more of their neural resources and cognitive capacity to do a task to the same ability as a younger adult so they kind of increase the activation in their brain to compensate for declines elsewhere okay yeah but of course as you get older well so you might have declining abilities in some senses but you have a vast a, a mm-hmm. bigger catalogue of experience. Yes, exactly you. right, exactly right. So imagine Caitlin here when she's 60, 70 and, and finding those four-leaf clovers. <laughs> I think there's a lot to be said, the great the great things about uh, ageing as well. I know that there's some research which shows that we often get happier as we age. Ah, so, uh, you know, so there's some very big positives there. But what also I think about the lab type work is it's very much focused on small scale mm. stuff. Yes. But I, I find as I as I approach the grey years, which will happen eventually, <laughs> is that uh, my view of the world has, has changed. But that's yes. my intellectual scaling, not my. Mm. So I, I see global scale things. So I'm writing about global warming and so on. Yeah. And my interest in the micro detail is still there, but it's now in the context of this big picture stuff. Yeah, that yeah. Must be, is that harder to test for, that kind of thing? Um, it, it's an area where psychology, I think, needs to do more work in, is looking at um, the interaction between personality, social psychology situations, and cognitive psychology, because we have all of these different disciplines where people get stuck in their labs, like you say, looking at particular questions. But there's a lot to be said for looking at how all these different elements interact. Yeah, yeah and I think that's a really well, fruitful... Maybe a way you could do it is processing text. So you could give someone a few paragraphs or a few pages mm-hmm. of something to read and then ask them what they, they learnt from that. Or yeah. I suppose it's roughly like your fish in the pond yeah. thing. Yeah, so I think... Yeah, everybody with different experiences, and I think your experiences certainly change across time, and it goes to show how flexible your mind is and how flexible your brain is, which is, yeah, amazing. Well, it is is amazing, and how you were attuned to to different things. So before the show, Mm -hmm. we were talking about in Western people, people living in cities, very good at picking horizontal, vertical lines, and Mm -hmm. even a couple of degrees off 90 degrees, you can say that, that angle is... Skew. Mm, yes. But, uh, but the people who live in uh, maybe the western desert or something don't might, It might be the case. I don't know what research has been done, but it could be. Who knows? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I have heard that, yeah. Yeah. And uh, we were also talking about people learning dances, that people in western oh, cultures right. orient a dance to their body, my mm. left arm, my right arm, front and, and back. But people who, I think they were like, Namibian desert herders or something mm. and they did the dance aligning to the geographic compass right it's just amazing because it's, well, so, it's so different to what we experience here yeah 
Well, we are running to the end of our time, so just give us a reminder if somebody wants to mm -hmm. be... Oh, some fun. I reckon it'd be huge <laughs> fun doing these uh, experiments. So you can come out and hang out with me in the lab, or there's actually a whole lot of studies going on in ANU Psychology which are very interesting. Um, and to do so, you can go onto the Psychology page. Um, there's a whole lot of studies there. Or if you want to do my study, um, you can email me at rebecca.lawrence at anu.edu.au. Um, and I just point out there's a couple of things that you have to fulfill to do my study. Um, so you have to be 18 to 40 years of age. You have to have normal or correct to normal vision. So you have to be wearing glasses if you've got some eye problems. Um, and you have to either identify as being from a Western cultural background or an East Asian cultural background. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> Uh, and I think you even are paying people? Um, yeah, so it's a $5 compensation to offset the cost of travelling into the uni. Oh, there you go. Well, it's been huge fun talking to you today, Rebecca Lawrence. Uh, uh, maybe you let me into the lab even though I'm, uh, <laughs> I, I, I fail the selection criteria. <laughs> More Rebecca than Lawrence from the uh, School of... Psychology. Psychology yep. ANU. And Caitlin Roy, great That's to have you in the studio, <laughs> Caitlin. Now we've got to go, but a uh, quick heads up, uh, Ask Fuzzy Today talks about the paleo diet. Rosemary Stanton has written a column about that. Uh, it's a bit of bumpkin, I think. All salt and shape of face and environment. Got to go. Catch you later. Double.